Your body is an animal, doesn't ask for much. A little music and a soft touch. Why don't you let it out to play? Your heart is in a birdcage, singing in your chest. You wanna shut it up, but give it a rest. You're gonna die one day. It's been a while. Uh, sorry for the long pause, been traveling, doing crazy shit. Um, by crazy, I just mean busy, occupying. Um, but, uh, hey, I'm back. I left you in my senior year of college. I was in Mexico um, doing that, um, living with those people on the, the occupied hacienda. So I get back to college. It's my senior year. It's spring term. Everything's pretty much over uh and uh yeah so i graduated after you know doing the typical thing you do when you've gone abroad for the first time i came back with all these mexican handicrafts that i was you know i thought were you know my my treasures from traveling far turned out most of them were made of polyester I remember giving my friend Mike, uh, Mike was a musician, or is, I assume he's still alive, I've lost touch with him. Um, He was a very interesting cat. He was a musician, went to the same college I went to, Hobart, and um, he he was one of these guys who played five or six different instruments, and I I bought him uh, like a flute, like bamboo or something, down in Chiapas, and I brought it back, and and he, this is a guy who could pick up any instrument from anywhere in the world, and within an hour he was, you know, playing songs on it. And he could not get any sound out of this flute. It was just, you know, I'd see him, and he, he was a very calm guy, very feline kind of character. So he never really got agitated about it, at least not in any visible sense. But I could tell it frustrated him. He could not get any sound out of that thing. And then one night we were hanging out in his apartment, as we often did, Smoking some weed, listening to some Funkadelic. Uh, Mike was a scholar of Funkadelic. Um, To this day, I can tell you all sorts of things about Funkadelic, Bootsy Collins, George Clinton, you know, the whole crowd, the the Brides of Funkenstein, you know, who was in which band, who backed up whom, who got kicked out for what, which drugs were involved in which shows, all this kind of stuff. He knew everything. He was a collector of information and and, you know, obscure recordings and stuff. Um, but anyway, we were hanging out in his apartment one night, getting high, and uh, we used to just listen to uh, Funkadelic records and play percussion on stuff that he had around his apartment. I can't imagine how the neighbors uh, <laughs> experienced that because we were playing, you know. I mean, we weren't loud about it, but we were, you know, just tapping things all over the apartment. Anyway... One of us had this flute and we were tapping it, you know, playing uh, a beat on a frying pan or something. And the flute shattered. And <laughs> when we looked at it, I realized it was made of plastic. It was a plastic fucking tube that somebody had painted to look like wood. So here I am bringing this piece of plastic tubing back thinking it's some, you know, great artifact from the primitive people of Chiapas. I mean, I'm walking around wearing sarapes and, you know, 
crazy shit. I don't know. Maybe I'll try to find a picture of myself from those days. I was um, a pretty bizarre-looking character. I had these army boots. I remember I always wore them. They were um, Nam boots, like green fabric with a black uh, leather base. And the leather split at some point, so I wrapped silver duct tape around it. And uh, and I had... Uh, like um, Disney character shoelaces in them. I, I enjoyed the irony of the Disney characters in the Nam boots. I don't know. Anyway, so uh, after that, those few months back at school, I graduated, and Mike, the funk scholar, wanted to come to Alaska with me. So uh, the next year we were going to go up together. Now, here's a thing that happened around the time we were hanging out, playing the drums and all that. I'm in his apartment with another guy, Kevin. And we're, you know, smoking bongs and listening to funk and just hanging out. And the phone rings and Mike goes and gets the phone and Kevin and I listen to some more music. Mike's gone 15, 20 minutes. And he comes back and, uh, you know, loads up another bowl and anybody want a beer and whatever and, the you know, the hangout just continues. After a while, somebody says, uh, yeah, what's going on? You want to do something this weekend? Maybe go for a hike? Or um, and Mike says, oh, no, I got to go home. He, he lived in, uh, in New York State, just north of New York, in Chappaqua, actually, which is where the Clintons have a house. And Mike's the guy who told me that Chappaqua, his high school, uh, their football team was known as the Fighting Quakers which if you know anything about Quakers, you know, it's pretty funny. Um, anyway, and Mike said, uh, no, I got to go home this weekend. That was my dad who called earlier. So, oh, what's going on? Why do I have to go home? My mom fell down the stairs and, and died. What? That was it? His mom fell down the stairs and died. He got the news. Came back in, packed another bowl, asked if anybody wanted a beer. Bizarre. So the expectation among our friends was Mike's going to lose his mind at some point here. You know, this isn't natural. You can't be that calm when your mother falls down the stairs and dies. You can't not freak out. So everybody was saying to me, you know, when you guys are hitchhiking up to Canada, you know, expect it. The dude's going to lose his fucking mind and you're going to, you know, have to be there to to help him and support him. And of course I would. I I loved the guy. He was a, a good friend of mine in those days. Um, but we did. We hitchhiked. Uh, I think we took, we drove, if I remember correctly, we drove across the country with Kevin and his brother in some big car. I remember some bizarre road trip. I've driven across North America probably a dozen times, so they all sort of blend together, except for one one trip I'll tell you about in a future podcast, a spontaneous trip with a woman. That was a very interesting thing. But anyway, um, the others tend to blend together. Uh, but we drove across the country. I think they were going to San Francisco. Then Mike and I made our way up to Seattle, got the ferry up the Inside Passage, and hitchhiked from Haynes, um, same route I had taken the year before, 
with uh, with the two the two dudes from Colorado that I met and one of whom I went to prison with. Anyway, took the same route with Mike, uh, and I remember Mike and I got stuck uh, outside of Whitehorse, and it was it was bad because there's nothing out there. It's tundra and. We're hanging out there, and I think we were there, I don't know, a day or two. And and um, I found along the side of the highway, I found this Bible, this old Bible that was just completely weathered. It had been out there probably for a couple of winters, but it was one of those, you know, really well-made Bibles. And so it, it hadn't disintegrated, but the the pages had curled really tightly. And there was this leather, you know, stiff leather cover that was kind of ripped up. Probably rats had eaten most of it. And, and um, I mean, it was a real artifact, this Bible. And uh, I lit it on fire and... Mike and I started dancing around it like a couple of lunatics, you know, hooting and, you know, just being silly. And this pickup truck came by, flying by, boom, stopped, brakes, brake lights, you know, the smoke coming from the tires, the whole thing, and then backs up like crazy reverse, high-speed reverse, swerving all over the place. And it's these guys, it's... um. This dude, probably in his 50s, his nephew, who was probably in his early 20s, and his nephew's buddy, same age. Um, And they were uh, three fucking yahoos from, I think they were from Idaho or something like that. And they were like, you know, something happened. The the dude had a fight with his wife or some, some, I don't remember, some family drama. And they were like, fuck it, let's go to Alaska. Fuck these women, right? And they just jumped in their truck and they're like going to Alaska. So they saw us there. And for some reason, they decided to stop and throw us in the back of the truck. There was a cab on the truck, but it was full of their gear, fishing gear, all this. So we were wedged in there between, you know, all their crap and but, hey, it was a ride out of Whitehorse, so you're going to take what you can get. And so they take off. And, of course, it, it was kind of cool because we were back there by ourselves, so you don't have to, like, have the awkward conversation and, you know, pretend you, you have a lot in common with someone when really all you have in common is that you want to get down the road that they're driving on, you know. Um, but at meals and rests and all that kind of stuff, we were with them, and, man, they were – not uh our kind of people they were like okay first of all they kept complaining about how everything was so expensive in canada because canada was a communist country uh they couldn't really wrap their heads around the fact that the canadian dollar was only worth 80 cents to the american dollar therefore even though something seemed more expensive it actually wasn't I tried to explain that to them. Mike tried to explain it, and then we just gave up. So uh, they were also really pissed off that they couldn't bring their guns through Canada. Uh, They had a bunch of guns, and they were stopped at the border, and they, um, you know, admitted they had the guns, luckily for them, and so they had to send them. They had to ship them up to Alaska where they could pick them up again, and they thought that was further evidence of the fact that Canada was a communist country. 
So uh, these were, you know, this was before Fox News, but these are the kind of, you know, Fox News type people. And uh, so it was it was awkward, but they drove us, man, they drove us all the way to uh, past Fairbanks, actually, to the brother. The brother of one of the guys was living south of Fairbanks. And so we pull in there, I don't know, three, four days later. And the brother was not happy to see Mike and me. He was like he saw right the 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 guys in the car sort of thought we were their buddies, and we were doing our best to seem that way. Um, and they seemed to buy it, and they seemed desperate for buddies too. So there was this real like, hey, you know, you lo- you like me, don't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we're buddies. We're gonna hang out and. Mike and I were like, yeah, yeah, we're going to hang out. And then we got to the house, and his brother was just like, no, this is all bullshit. And and he didn't like us. I, I think he didn't even know these guys were coming. So suddenly he's got these three yahoos, you know, in his living room, and plus the two hitchhikers they picked up. So Mike and I, uh, that night, we, we were, like, sleeping out in our tent in the yard. And in the middle of the night, we just, um, you know, broke down camp and – and walked out of there and got a ride and basically it left a note saying, Hey, we don't want to be an imposition, you know, <laughs> but we disappeared in the middle of the night, went down to Kenai. So we get to Kenai, same place I'd been the year before. Um, but now the year before I arrived early, which is why I got into all that trouble with the tequila this year, we're arriving late. The bluff was packed. The, all the best pl- spots were taken. The, there were tents everywhere, hundreds of tents. And so Mike and I were kind of fucked and we're walking around and there were these two hill, small hills, maybe eight feet high, something like that. And there was like one big hill and then a sort of a smaller hill, like a shoulder on the big hill. And of course, nobody put tents up there because, you know, you don't put your tent on a slope and the hills were uh, covered with tall grass and so we were sort of walking around trying to figure out what to do, and we walked up to these hills, and just why not, we started walking around on the hill, and it turns out that there were two flat spots sort of on the shoulders of this hill where we could set up tents. So we set up our tents on these, you know, we, we sort of uh, trampled down the grass, and we set up our tents on these two flat spots on the hill and so it was really cool because we were like the last ones to arrive but we ended up with the best campsites because nobody else thought to check if there were flat spots under all that grass so there we so we had these really cool sites a little above everyone we could see out over the bluff and all this and but the fish weren't still in yet so there was still this sort of pre- pre-work craziness going on people were getting high and drunk every night and they were drumming circles and screaming frenzies and all sorts of you know the kind of thing that happens when you got a lot of young people restless together and uh somebody found this this great this this like um it's probably eight feet nine feet long and it was it was wide at the bottom and then narrow at the top and it was made of metal and somebody had been cooking uh using it as like a cooking grill 
And somebody, we came home one night and somebody had dragged it to the top of this little hill where we were camping out and mounted it like a Eiffel Tower on top of this thing. And somebody else had found this, this uh, big funnel, this big metal funnel that looked almost like a satellite dish and a black PVC tube and they'd lashed it together into this bizarre futuristic industrial looking sculpture that they'd put at the top of the hill and they were dancing and singing and you know spilling beer and you know doing their thing and uh anyway so that that became known as the phallus of the tundra and Mike and I were deemed to be the keepers of the phallus because we were essentially the testicles of the phallus of the tundra. I'll put up a, a photo. I think I've got a photo of the of the phallus of the tundra. I'll put it on my site, chrisryanphd.com. If you're not listening, if you're listening to this on the on the apps or something, if you go to chrisryanphd.com, you'll see uh, archives of this and and photos that I mount. Anyway, uh, so we were the, the keepers of the phallus. And uh, we got together. We, uh, I mean, we got jobs in Kenai uh, Packers again, the same place I'd worked the year before. I don't remember what Mike was doing. I don't think he was on the slime line, though. I think he was, he had a job in the freezer department. He had a better job than I did. And, uh, so I, I was working there again, uh, you know, gutting fish. I got, they threw me on the slime line again. And, um, and I really didn't want to do that. And, you know, the year before I had figured out a way to get out of it with my, you know, sweeping out the back door thing. But this year, uh, it looked like that wasn't going to happen. And, and I had already paid my dues as far as I was concerned. So one day I heard a story. Somebody said that there was a job on a boat in Seward. And the minute I heard that, I went to the foreman, quit, went up, packed my tent, and hitchhiked down to Seward, a few hours away. I don't remember exactly how far. You can look on a map. You'll see it's Seward's a beautiful little town uh, opening into the uh, with Prince William Sound there. Anyway, I get down there, look for the boat in question, and the job was gone. Uh, they'd hired a woman. Anytime, if there was a woman who could get on one of these fishing boats, she would generally get the job. You know, women are few and far between in Alaska. And so there was really no chance for me there. So I was sitting on the dock, um, bummed out. I'd quit my, my job, which I didn't really give a shit about. There are a lot of jobs in the summer in Alaska, so I'd get another one. But I was just sort of sitting there wondering what to do. And I heard somebody screaming in one of the other boats big yelling fight and then a few minutes later this guy comes out with his his bag you know fuck you fuck yeah and he's got a you know a duffel bag and he gets off the boat and and stalks away like okay well whatever uh so i'm just sitting there and then uh, this kid comes out it's like 16 years old really all-american sweet blonde very good-looking kid and we start chatting because uh, uh, he came out of that boat. I said, mm, what's going on? And, oh, yeah, my dad, you know, fired the, the deckhand. And really, yeah. And after a few minutes, the kid says, are you looking for a job? I said, yeah. Really? Have you ever worked on a boat? Oh, yeah. Now, this is all bullshit, okay? I'd never worked on a boat. 
the only thing I knew about boats is that I didn't get seasick. Um, but anyway, so the kid goes in. The kid and I had sort of made friends at that point. I think that we talked about martial arts. The kid was studying martial arts, and I mentioned that I I taught martial arts at some point. And anyway, so the kid goes in and tells his dad, "Hey, there's this guy up there. You know, we need a deck can." So. Dad comes out. We talk for a few minutes, and he hires me. Now, Dad is a – let me frame this for you. Dad is a big, aggressive, ugly, mean, evil guy who has this sweet, kind, generous, beautiful – 16-year-old son who lives with his mother in Seattle and in the summers comes up and spends the summer with his dad on this boat. And the kid is, the kid loves his dad, but he's starting to, uh, to get an inkling of what kind of man his father is. So it's an interesting summer and it's the beginning of the summer. And uh, so suddenly I'm on this boat with dad and son and me. That's it, the three of us. This is a tender. I think it was about 35 feet long, something like that maybe. I'll uh, I'll post a picture of the boat as well. I've got one, I think. Uh, it's a tender, which means that what a tender does is it it supplies the fishing boats. So what we would do, the fishing boats would be out in Prince William Sound. We would be in Seward. Uh, we would um, buy groceries, fresh water, beer, whatever they needed, uh, take it out to the fishing boats, the fleets that are out there in the water, sell them the, the stuff that they had ordered, and then we would um, offload their fish. There was this big vacuum system that would suck the fish out of the hold of the fishing boats into the hold of the tender. And the hold of the tender was like like a, a swimming pool, like a suburban, you know, backyard-sized swimming pool, um, nine, ten feet deep maybe. I mean, it was the hold of the boat. And it was under the water level, so it was all very cold, chilled by the Alaskan waters. And so we would uh, suck the fish out of these fishing boats into the hold of our boat, load it up, and then take the fish into Seward, offload them, load up again with the groceries, and head back out. So we would do these circuits from Seward back out to wherever they were fishing that maybe was, you know, six, seven days round trip each one. The boat was based out of Kodiak, and at the end of the summer, we went to Kodiak. Um, but the, the working part of the summer was just uh, between Seward and, you know, out in the middle of Prince William Sound, where the fishing boats were. So that's what we were doing. And it, it was this bizarre situation because, uh, like I say, there was this strange polarity between this father and the son. and And I found myself in the middle of this struggle that was going on and looking back on it it's it's all very strange and complicated and yet bizarrely simple too because it was it was very much a struggle between good and evil and that part of it's simple the part that's complicated 
is that the father contained both good and evil. Um, I remember one night we were sitting at dinner and the father really was into these um, Charles Bronson revenge movies. You know, these were in the 70s. It was this guy. I think I mentioned him in the in the prison ep- episode because um, one of the guys uh, that we were having lunch with looked a lot like Charles Bronson. But anyway, he was re- the the father was really into Charles Bronson movies, and and they were these horrible movies where you know black guys raped my wife and killed her, and now I'm gonna kill all you fuckers. And it was just like you know there was a lot of racist and nasty evil revenge porn kind of movies and the father would just watch them every fucking night at dinner it was horrible and i remember one night he was telling some story about how he'd been at vegas and he like bought all these whores and coke and he was fucking all these whores and i remember looking across the table at the son and the son was just suffering to hear his father talking this way and I remember saying something and triggering the sort of existential struggle that was going to be the <laughs> the theme of that summer. I remember saying something like, yeah, you know, I don't know if, you know, having sex with women who don't really want to have sex with you is such a cool thing. And... And um, his response was, first of all, shut the fuck up. Secondly, I could kill you and drop your body overboard and nobody would ever know. And I remember saying, well, your son would know. And that was all I had. So... The father and I were in this struggle. It seemed to me that we were in a struggle for the soul of his son. It's a very sort of Dante scene when I look back on it. But from this perspective, I look back on it now, and and, and some of this will make sense later, but I look back on this now, and I think the father... the, The main conflict was within the father, and part of him wanted me to win. Part of him looked at himself and said, you know what? I really don't want my son to be like me, at least not these parts of me. And there was a weird grudging respect that he held for me. One, because I had a college degree. He didn't. Two, because I was smart. I I was, I, you know... I was superior to him in certain ways that he could recognize, even though I was much younger. And I was the worst fucking deckhand ever. On that count, I had no, nothing to stand on. I mean, look, you get a job on a boat, you need to know knots, right? The only knot I knew how to tie was the one on my shoes. <laughs> I'm serious. So the first time that I remember the first time the boat came in and he was like, okay, you get up on the bow. And luckily I knew what the bow was. And, you know, they'll throw you the rope and tie us down. And so the guy from the the dock throws the rope over and I wrap it around the, the pylon or whatever the fuck it's called. And I'm trying to tie like a bow 
a, a bow in the fucking thing. And the dude just went off fucking screaming, you know, you fucking idiot. I can't believe you piece of shit, motherfucker, blah, blah, blah. Just really like so extreme. Uh, you know, if I had taken it seriously at all, I probably would have melted into a pool. But I just figured, fuck it, I don't care. It's funny, you know. And uh, and the guy, I remember the guy on the dock who had thrown me the rope when we finally got in. He was like, hey, buddy, don't worry about it. That one's a screamer. You know, it's, you're, you're going to be fine. And, uh, you know, he's like, he was worried because he thought, like, maybe, you know, I'd, I'd suffered lasting damage <laughs> to my ego or something. Um, so I was a really bad deckhand, but you know, I did what I could. I did what I was told. I cleaned, you know, swabbed the deck. And one of my jobs was to, when we were offloading the, the fish, um, the way they came in was that big vacuum system. But for some reason, the way they went out was a, was a conveyor belt. This, this thing with like buckets on it that, um, uh, scooped up the fish. But the thing was that once the fish got down to about half the depth of the of the hold, it this thing wasn't very efficient anymore. So the job he gave me, and I don't know if, if everyone had to do this or this was just a special thing for me, but I had to drop down into this hold. So I'm literally up to my shoulders in dead salmon wearing this rain gear, and there's like globs of salmon snot dropping from the the ceiling above down the back of my shirt and rain gear. And I, I'm, you know, I'm literally up to my fucking neck in fish snot and I have my arms out and I'm sort of pushing the fish into this conveyor belt bucket system so that it'll offload them faster. So I was down there for, I don't know, three or four hours pushing the fish into this thing, swimming in fish snot. Uh, you know, this was 1984. I still cannot eat sushi. Uh, I will never eat sushi. I've seen so much fucking raw fish. There's no way I'm eating sushi. I like salmon, though, cooked, but not sushi. Yeah. So uh, that was that was the boat situation. And uh, I had some weed with me, which was interesting, because when the father was asleep, I got the son high. He had never been high before. So I'm sure he still remembers me for that. I kind of felt it was my job to corrupt this kid in good ways, you know, to to sort of help him to see that there were there were ways to be a man that did not uh, have anything to do with the path his father was choosing. Um. Yeah, and I was young. I mean, I, I was I don't know what was I twenty. Too. So I, I wasn't much younger than this kid, but, you know, 15, 16 to 22, that's a big jump. Um, so that was the sort of existential uh, situation I found myself in with, with him. And, and I was on that boat uh, probably two months. And he never paid me during the time. I didn't get paid every week. It was a thing where you're going to get paid at the end. And after a few weeks, honestly, I thought I'm not going to get paid anything. I'm lucky if this guy doesn't kill me or fire me. But he never did. And we, like I say, there was this sort of grudging respect because he sensed that I really didn't give a fuck. And I 
I've recognized in the years since then that there's great power in not giving a shit. You know, there's, it gives you freedom. It gives you uh, a veto. And the fact that I wasn't freaked out by him or intimidated by him, he recognized that. And I dare say he was grateful for it because, as I said earlier, there was part of him that recognized aspects of himself that he did not want his son to to recapitulate in his own life. And so there was a strange dynamic going on there. And we, at the end of the summer, uh, at the end of the, you know, the season, the fish were done. He said to me, uh, I can leave you in Seward or you can come with us to Kodiak if you want. That's where the boat was based. So I said, yeah, I'll come to Kodiak, right? Why not? Check out Kodiak. So I went with him and the son, and that was probably a two-day, two-night trip. And I remember at one point, now when I say he, there was this grudging respect, I, I don't at all mean to say that our little war uh, stopped. The war continued. I remember maybe it was when we were going to Kodiak because we were out in open water and it was stormy. And stormy water in Alaska is fucking stormy water. I mean, mountains. Uh, if you've seen the most dangerous catch, you have an idea what I'm talking about. Um, although it's not that extreme in September, October when I was doing this. Um, but we were going out to Kodiak and it was not my watch. You know, there are only three of us. So somebody's on the on the bridge at all times when we're underway. Even me, and who knew nothing about, you know, um, uh, managing the boat. But it's all automatic steering and, and all that. And, and, you know, the job is just to be there, be awake. If an alarm goes off, go wake up the skipper, right? So um, I had been on the deck for, for my hours, and now I, it was my turn to sleep, and I was in my bunk, and the boat was just tossing all over the place. I, I They have, uh, like, straps where you strap yourself into the bunk. And I was sound asleep, and the sun comes down and wakes me up. I was like, oh, fuck, what? And he says, yeah, my dad wants you up on the bridge. So I go up on the bridge, and this was actually – this was the moment when I, I recognized – something about boat design. I'd always thought, you know, the the hallways in boats are very narrow. And I'd always thought that was just a question of space. Um, but at this point, I realized I think it's a design thing. They wouldn't make them wider even if they could because they're exactly the right width that you put your hands up on either side. And when the boat is tossing back and forth, you can still walk down the hallway without falling, bouncing uh, wall to wall. So anyway, I get up to the bridge and I say, yeah, what, what, what do you need? And he said, oh, nothing, nothing. I just want to watch you puke. I said, man, if I puke, I'm going to puke on your radar. <laughs> he says, get the fuck out of here. So that was it. That was the kind of asshole he was. He would wake me up just to watch me puke. But I didn't puke. I wasn't seasick. And I was smoking weed all the time. So even if I was seasick, he never caught me smoking weed. I don't know what he would have done with that. Or if he'd caught me getting high with his son, he probably would have shot me. Uh, 
anyway, we so we get to Kodiak, which is, by the way, the, the home of the Kodiak brown bear, which are the biggest carnivores on the planet, uh, land carnivores. And, uh, and he, we, you know, we'd pull in, we dock everything. He says, all right, let's go. I go with him. We get in the car, drive to the bank and he gets the money that he owes me and he gives it to me. And he says, I don't remember the exact words, but it was basically, you're a shitty deckhand, but you're a good man. And he shook my hand. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm going to die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're going to say. When everyone you've ever known is headed for a headstone, I don't want to give the end away, but we're going to die one day. Your body is an animal, doesn't ask for much. A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation Running from a confrontation to the ground. 